Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to... Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And it is Tuesday, July 28th, 2015, and tonight's topic is, Is Your Doctor a Certified Killer? Tonight, I'm going to examine the practice of certifying doctors from the management point of view and from the doctor point of view. I'm also going to uh, examine it from the patient point of view. And the shocking crosstalk between doctors and healthcare managers could leave you in the crosshairs. So today, I'm going to unravel the latest controversy in doctor certification and what it means to you. As always, think happens. And we have a lively chat, as usual, at healingwithdrdaniels.jetango.com. And... Uh, People can call in or listen by phone at 914-338-0695. Okay. So first I'd like to talk from a patient perspective because that's one perspective that is absolutely nowhere represented in the literature. So if you examine uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, um, Medical Management Journals, Wherever you want to read, that's one perspective that is totally, conspicuously absent, that is, if you're a patient. Um, However, people reading these um, industry journals are generally quite preoccupied and often don't even realize this. So I'm going to take it from a patient perspective just for a moment here to kind of anchor us. 
what does certification mean? I mean, why license a doctor? What does a, a, a patient think? What do they expect? What do they believe when they feel that something is certified? Well, there's some uh, expectation that whatever is being certified has been inspected and has been seen to meet certain standards of usefulness and benefit and safety for those who might purchase or consume or encounter it. The other perspective is having a doctor certified, one has the expectation that this doctor is uniquely equipped to examine the maybe laboratory information, the information in terms of physically examining you, and to present you with a list of options that are especially tailored to your lifestyle, your preferences, your needs, and you feel that this might be a person that's especially able to help you reach your healing or health objective. This is more or less what people uh, expect or think when they encounter someone who is certified, especially a certified doctor. And so then there might also be the presumption then that certification would make a doctor more effective and produce greater benefit for you as an individual patient and less harm. So this would be maybe a patient expectation of what the certification process would mean, what it would imply, and what it might might produce. Now, personally, I've been through quite a few certification processes, so I can offer a little insight here. Um, one example is I was in medical school, and you can think of medical school as a prolonged four-year certification process because certain things happen, and you have exams, and you have to pass a level of inspection. So I was in class one day, medical school class, and they were discussing a uh, particular therapy. I believe it was antibiotic use, as a matter of fact. And it was mentioned that antibiotics can be very dangerous and, of course, very deadly. And even though they have these devastating side effects, that doctors should not be afraid to use them. And you shouldn't let the fact that uh, a patient you saw this morning had a devastating side effect prevent you from recommending or using this very same therapy, say, later on this afternoon in another patient. And that it was very unscientific because um, a doctor should never be just as good as the last patient he saw. In other words, a doctor should never accept his own personal observations above and beyond that of scientific research presented by people he never met talking about patients he never saw. And uh, as a young, almost doctor, sitting in that seat, I was troubled by this. I thought a doctor should be at least as good as the last patient he saw. In other words, if a doctor uses a therapy and sees a patient drop dead from the therapy, it seems to me it's reasonable to put that one aside and try another therapy that might have a better track record. So this is just a glimpse into the early phase of the certification process. And so a big 
part of the certification process is creating uniformity. In other words, creating uniformity from one doctor to the next, making one doctor, we'll call us a human being, indistinguishable from the next human being so that they will all make predictable decisions and predictable behaviors given a certain set of circumstances. This may or may not be the best thing for you personally as a patient. For example, if you're a patient and you work the night shift, well, you have a need to get sleep during the day and to be awake at night. And if you're a patient and you work the day shift, you have a need to be awake during the day and asleep at night. And so a doctor who doesn't take these peculiarities into account might, for example, dose your medicine inconveniently, where you'd have to get up, for example, to take a dose of medication. This is just a, a, a minor example of how uh, uniformity among doctors might not be um, the most convenient, beneficial um, thing for an individual patient. So that's the patient perspective. So the patient perspective is the expectation that this process of certification is an inspection process that results in a doctor being more appropriate to that patient's personal needs. Let's take a look from a management point of view. I think the management perspective is is very um, very revealing, and I think the professional doctor's response to that perspective is also very revealing, and I personally think uh, troubling, as it, it kind of misses a very big piece here. All right, so as always, hold on to your chair. Think happens. Okay, so here's the medical, the management perspective, and it's important to say whose perspective this is. This is Robert F. Huckman, a PhD. In other words, this person has never been to medical school, has uh, not examined a patient, and so uh, has does not have that perspective. Then we have uh, Anand Rahman, PhD, MBA. All right, so this person. The PhD is used to processing large amounts of information. And an MBA, they've, they've kind of got the dollars and cents pretty much under control here, a very good grasp of it. But again, uh, the patient in all this is not, is, it, there's no representation. This is a management perspective. And so this is what they say. Maintaining quality and spurring innovation have been central objectives of the U.S. healthcare system. Well, this is already, uh, again, for me, as a, as a practicing physician, a little troubling. Because if you have something in place that's helpful, then what this says is you need innovation. You need to make things different. You need to make things new. And this is the MBA perspective, the perspective where you got to get people to throw away last year's clothes and get a whole new set of clothes. You, know, you need production, production, production. You need advances, advances, advances. You need to have turnover and economic growth. And you get that by innovation, by getting people to constantly do things differently whether or not the old things were working. Okay. So we've got innovation as a priority. And then quality. And quality, we can we don't know what quality is, but we're going to find out later in this piece what quality is. So physicians are challenged to minimize the likelihood of errors that could harm patients. At the same time, making efforts to understand the causes of illness and develop better ways to prevent, treat, and cure them. 
In the midst of these multiple goals, maintenance of certification, MOC, represents an important component of ensuring that physicians remain qualified in their field of expertise. Now, qualified is actually a technical term. A technical term, uh, qualified, means that your piece of paper stays valid. So what makes a piece of paper valid is actually arbitrary. You know, you can get a piece of paper like a high school diploma and it's valid for your lifetime, just for example. So an important component of ensuring that physicians remain qualified. This is an assumption, so there's no evidence in the association here. Based on the experiences of other industrial settings, however, it's clear that even though current approaches to maintenance of certification are necessary, they are likely not enough to maximize quality and innovation in the healthcare system for a number of reasons. And so we have to understand the industrial setting. So one example of an industrial setting is a tree, and you'll take a tree and put it through a lumber mill, and out the other end you'll get some uh, 2 by 4s and uh, 1 by 12s and different sizes or pieces of wood. But at the end of the process, you do not have a live or living tree. It's important to understand. So in the industrial setting, however, the patient actually becomes the product. The patient becomes that tree that's chopped into uniform uh, one by twelve or two by fours. And if you want to take, make it into a car, something that rolls off the assembly line and functions, this car is being made to quality specifications not for the benefit of the car, not for the use of the car, but for the use of whoever might purchase the car at the end of the process. So in other words, in this analogy, the patient becomes a tree to be sacrificed in the process and sold off into pieces, or the patient becomes a car or an automobile or a refrigerator to be manufactured to certain quality specifications and at the end of the process becomes purchased or used by another entity. So at no point in the industrial setting or industrial process is the computer, the car, or the refrigerator manufactured for its own individual intrinsic benefits according to its own individual intrinsic preferences. So just this analogy to the industrial setting immediately removes from the patient any willful participation in either the process, the industrial process, which we'll call healthcare, or the outcome. All of these are, by definition, in the industrial setting, established by other parties. So let's see what else they have to say. So first, the goal of the healthcare system should not be to reach an acceptable quality level, but to maximize quality and innovation given constrained resources. In other words, to innovation being, you don't want to make last year's car model this year. It's a new year, you want a new car model manufactured. Why? Maybe it'll sell better, but not because it's better or greater use of that intrinsic car itself. This is an important thing to, to, to get here. And then to maximize quality, again, quality is never defined by the car. It's always defined 
by the person in charge of the manufacturing process. And that person is a person, it's not a car. And so first the goal is to maxim should not be to reach an acceptable quality level, but to maximize quality and innovation given constrained resources. Ooh, well, constrained resources, who's constraints? That's interesting. And we know who's constraints. The constraints are the constraints of the insurance company, because the insurance company needs to make a profit. Second, healthcare delivery has moved from being individual based to being team based. As such, the overall process of delivering healthcare is increasingly becoming more important in determining outcomes than the skills of any individual physician, nurse, or therapist involved in the process. In other words, the actual skills of any individual are not that important. Now, from a patient perspective, this is extremely, extremely troubling that they're going to subject your doctor to a certification process that de-emphasizes his skills. A process that says, well, this doctor's skills are not irre- are irrelevant. This doctor should not ex- exercise any kind of judgment, individual thought, or creativity. And furthermore, you as a patient are an automobile. That means that you have no input into this process. You, you don't design the process. And since you don't design the process, obviously, you can't be involved in defining what constitutes quality. And because innovation is a priority, you can't say, hey, you know what, Doc? That thing you did last year, that worked really well. Let's do that again. No, 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 no. Okay, so we got the MBAs and the PhDs here, and they are totally uh, constructing your experience in in advance. And they've got the uh, doctor certification process NLC, maintenance of certification, in place to make sure that doctors become part of this group process and each doctor plays his role, whatever that might be. Okay, so in contrast, companies outside of healthcare, especially in manufacturing, have shown that quality should not be improved intermittently, but rather on a continuous basis. And again, especially in manufacturing, quality, and again, we're talking about quality as in what you do to this car and achieving a product that can be sold. And as we talked about before, insurance companies own the patients that they insure. These patients are called covered lives. And so this process, this healthcare process of manufacturing and modifying the patient has to be done to the specifications of the owner being the insurance company. And the insurance company needs to modify this process on a continuous basis. In short, efforts to ensure quality and innovation in healthcare must extend beyond the episodic certification of individuals and place greater emphasis on the continuous not just episodic, improvement, not just certification of processes, not just individuals. And so then what they're saying here is doctors must be continually their method of 
administering medical care to the patient must be continually altered, continually altered, continually changed by processes which are improved and innovated at all times. Now, this is shocking when you think that the human body is actually pretty stable over time. I mean, the heart always stays pretty much on the left side of the chest. People always come with, uh, you know, two lungs and two kidneys. It doesn't change. And so the idea then that medical care has to change constantly and continuously, it makes it obvious that the goal is not for the benefit of a particular human or individual. And they go on, though. They don't, they don't stop there. These guys, they're going for it, going for the goal here. If physicians and other healthcare professionals fail to improve quality and innovation substantially in the near term, outside forces such as regulators and policymakers will likely become more involved in certification and maintaining approaches to improvement. Okay. So physicians and healthcare professionals are not able to innovate. By definition, they don't innovate because they have to stick to the standards of care. So we know they're not going to innovate. <laughs> and since we know they're not going to innovate, we know that outside forces are going to get involved in certification and mandating approaches to improvement. Mandating means making laws, making rules about doctors. And so this is a pretense for imposing this process of continual innovation. Now, I said innovation. It, it didn't, uh, you know, again, there's no benefit here to the patient. They've got to be really clear about that. This is a manufacturing process that's being performed on the patient for the benefit, as are all manufacturing processes, of a third party. Now, who is that third party? That third party it could be the insurance company. It could be the hospital. It could be the uh, pharmaceutical industry. It could be the government. But the key here is a third party. So patient will, patient desire is not in this equation, very clearly. And they say it will be well served to illustrate that it can and will lead the efforts of necessary to necessary to improve quality and innovation, innovate in healthcare. And so, again, what we have here is an anterior desire to control the whole medical process in such a way as to administer to the patient, perform functions on the patient in such a way as for the benefit of the th a third party and maximizing the profit of a third party. So this is very clearly what they are talking about. Continuous process improvement. Now, this is a buzzword uh, across a host of manufacturing industries. So the last few decades have witnessed substantial progress in quality and safety performance. Now, what is safety performance? Does that mean the car is safer? The car, no. It means that the employees working on the car have fewer accidents. It might be that at the end of the line, the car is safer for use by its owners, whoever those owners are. But again, in the context of healthcare, from the point of view of the patient, this is pretty alarming that what we are talking about is increased safety for healthcare professionals and decreased to zero autonomy 
or even input into the process on the part of patients. And we see this happening when we see um, vaccine mandates now for adults, when we see um, other edicts for different types of uh, screening. So all of these things, we can see that it's rules and laws being applied to individual human beings, we'll call them patients, without their particular consent or approval. And so they're saying, this experience illustrates three key elements of continuous process improvement that need to be adopted to a much greater extent in healthcare and will serve as an important complement to current approaches to maintenance of certification. Not coincidentally, these three elements are literally the component terms of the phrase continuous process improvement. Again, continuous means like ongoing, minute to minute, process, means that it's a regimented, laid-out protocol as to how something is going to happen. And improvement means, definitely means change. And you always have to ask improvement by whose measure. In this case, certainly not by the patient's measure. Most forms of maintenance of certification in healthcare convey certification if an individual's test performance exceeds a threshold. To the extent that his acceptable level is anything less than 100%, it creates the impression that some level of defect or error is acceptable. So first of all, what is a doctor? A doctor is a tool, again, patient perspective, a doctor is a tool for the patient to achieve good health. And so let's just say compare a doctor to a screwdriver. Well, one patient might prefer, for whatever reason, a longer or shorter screwdriver or a broader or narrower head, but the tool is adequate to the task. And so in this case, in order to allow for the very wide variance that's human variability, um, you would have to have a very broad, it's called tolerance level or range of acceptable. So in other words, having one level of acceptable, whether it's 100% or 80% and everyone has to hit that target or else, it's inappropriate because the doctor is not whittling the patient down to a uniform, say, cube or something. For example, we could say that the patient starts out in the assembly line at birth. He's a guy, okay, we cut off his foreskin, we give him some immunizations, then he gets a little older, um, then we give him more immunizations. Then when he's 20, we take out his appendix. When he's 30, we take out his gallbladder. And uh, when he's 55, we castrate him uh, just so he won't get uh, prostate cancer. And so this would be a process. And so this would be a uniform process that you would put the patient who is the subject or object of the production process, he would go through this process. Now, whether it's beneficial for this person to um, have their foreskin removed, have the series of immunizations, oh, get the tonsils up, forgot that one, um, get ear tubes in their ear, um, have their appendix removed, have their gallbladder removed and get castrated, uh, for some people that might be an appropriate life pathway. For other people, it might not be. But 
if you institute continuous process improvement and mandate uniformity, then what you are going to get is a human being or patient, if you want to call it that, that goes through a manufacturing process where he is acted upon in a uniform manner by the members of the healthcare industry. And so, as they say here, they're going to aspire for zero defects, which means not one patient would escape the process, whatever the process shall be deemed to be by the owners. And so this article really is an attempt to put in place a control process. And doctors who read this believe this is a process to control the doctor's behavior, of course, but that is indirect. The direct objective, of course, is to control the journey and the experience and the manipulation and the mutilation of the human being called the patient. And they go on to make a tighter analogy. Prior to the 1970s, many manufacturers strove for a threshold level of acceptable quality. This view assumed there is an optimal quality level beyond which further improvement would not be worth the incremental cost of achieving it. This situation changed in the 70s and 80s, particularly as U.S. manufacturers realized that Japanese competitors operated with significantly higher quality levels, in other words, lower defect levels. And in other words, in English, less variability. And again, this is very important. So if you're a woman, for example, and you want a cesarean section, it's like, no, no, I'm sorry. We have a certain percentage to reach and, you know, you're not getting a C-section because you don't fall in that category. Or if you don't want a C-section, it's sorry, you're getting a C-section whether you want one or not because guess what? Our C-section level needs to be a certain percentage. And this is what this means in terms of a patient care. And so the Japanese... Um, over time, the view that the defect rate in the range of 1% to 3% was acceptable was supplanted by the realization that Japanese manufacturing rivals were pushing to improve on defect rates that were being measured in parts per million. Okay, so as a patient, take a look at your life. Are you really comparing it to a Japanese life? Are you really comparing it to a Korean life or a Chinese life or a South American life or whatever. No, it's your life. And you have certain preferences, whatever they might be. And when you go to a doctor, you want those preferences honored. And when you're seeing a certified doctor, your concept is that he's uniquely qualified to honor your preferences in the context of modern technology that might be available and that he can put it at your disposal. This says just the opposite, that this doctor has objectives determined by a process and by institutions and by manufacturing decision makers. And that is what he has to adhere to with a defect rate or deviation rate of parts per million, which means literally that a doctor might make an exception of one or two patients in a million when adhering to a particular protocol. So this is the goal 
that these PhDs and MBAs are striving for. This approach to continuous improvement is captured by the Japanese term Kaizen, or change for better, which suggests that each instance of improvement is an innovation to consider options for further improvement. So it's continual, continual, continual. Critical targeting, zero defects. Now a defect is very clear. It's a deviation from a protocol. That is a defect. So a defect is not um, patient-specific. So a, devi- a, a, deviation, a defect is the doctor deviating from protocol, the failure to take out an appendix, the failure to do a C-section, or to do a C-section, depending, again, on what the processes, uh, processes are that are put in place. And so this discussion of treaties by the administrators leaves it open as to what the process is doctors will follow or who will determine that process. But what is clear is the doctors will stick to that process and deviate only once or twice every million times. And so from a patient perspective, this may not be the kind of doctor that you need to see. This may not be the kind of doctor that's going to be best for your health. Again, when you take a look at a system where there's at least 107,000 deaths per year from properly prescribed medications. In a system like this, that number of 107,000 can be expected to explode because you've got to know some doctors refused to prescribe those medications properly because they were concerned the patient might die. And so with this type of process, where the doctors always prescribe the medication as directed only deviating one time in a million from the protocol. One could expect that that number of 107,000 deaths per year in the United States due to properly prescribed medications would literally skyrocket or explode to as much as even half a million. So this literally makes the doctor encounter much, much more lethal. Okay, for example, Paul O'Neill, the former chief executive officer of aluminum manufacturing Alcoa, made a public commitment to his employees, the media, and investors that Alcoa would target zero accidents in its plants. Now, again, zero accidents among who? The people working in the plants. So he didn't target zero defects in the aluminum foil, Alcoa. So we have to understand that in the manufacturing process, the patient becomes the aluminum and the employees who are manufacturing and fabricating you, the patient, are the ones that this guy is talking about in terms of a zero zero accidents. Okay, so he made the single most important performance metric for everyone in his organization, including himself. At the time O'Neill introduced this effort, many were concerned that Alcoa might be over-investing in safety, such that on the margin, the benefits of added safety would be exceeded by the cost of the productivity loss in trying to achieve it. Now, this gets the reader to erroneously identify with Alcoa employees, thinking, oh, this is great, man, yeah, safety, safety for humans, safety for, for the patients, yeah, this is good, it's a good process. But no, 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 no. If we want to take the manufacturing analogy straight to its you know, make it a complete, precise analogy. 
the patient, the human being patient, is actually analogous to the aluminum in this example. And the safety that they're investing in would be the safety for the members of the medical industrial complex who are modifying human beings, whether it's to make sure all women are relieved of their breasts by age 60 or that they have their, their hysterectomies by age 55, whatever the goal is in terms of modifying um, or adjusting or making uniform the product of the manufacturing plant. The product of the manufacturing plant, which is a medical industrial complex, is actually human beings. They are the ones who are being acted on. And that is the process that's becoming rigid. So the doctor is able to deviate no more than once or twice in a million times. So what they're saying then is the history of Alcoa's efforts suggested that there was no such trade-off between safety and productivity. In fact, O'Neill's aspirational push led to improvements on both dimensions for Alcoa. And so again, if we make things safe for our healthcare workers, they'll give us even better output in terms of modified human beings on the other end. And so maintenance of certification aims to certify that individuals, maybe doctors, are proficient in their target responsibilities. This is important. Their target responsibilities. Who decides what those targets are? They're very clear that individuals, the doctors and nurses, cannot be allowed to make that decision. So who does that leave? They can't make that decision. The, the car, the aluminum foil, it never decides what, what the target responsibilities are for the line workers. So who makes that decision? Well, it's pretty obvious. The healthcare industry, there's only so many players. Government, insurance company, hospital, pharmaceutical company. Those are the players. And so this is what these guys are putting forth. And obviously, should this procedure, this um, continuous process improvement be put in place, then profits for the hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies would become predictable and the submission and pliability and subservience of citizens will become predictable for the government as well. So this process is very important, and these goals are pretty awesome goals that uh, you know are of great interest in terms of achieving them. Okay, so we've looked at the management perspective. Let's take a look at the doctor response to this. <laughs> this is uh, to blow you away. I used to practice with these guys a lot of times. I used to go to... Uh, medical staff meetings with them too. I was a young doctor, so of course, I was uh, totally, you know, uh, deferential to the senior doctors. All right, so here we go. This is the recertification process, insulting and irrelevant. See, these doctors are saying that the process that these two PhDs and MBA guy describe is insulting and it's irrelevant. Okay, so the question, of course, insulting to whom and irrelevant to what? And so uh, these two guys, Dr. Mandrola and Dr. Schloss, are having this uh, conversation, and they published it on the uh, 
doctor website. I have a box that's totally covering this thing. It's like really annoying, but what are you going to do? So Dr. Mandrola says, well, how do you think the American Board of Internal Medicine got themselves into this situation? How do you think this happened? We always used to get in line and do what we do, and now there's this uproar. People have written about this, and I agree. Doctors are getting stretched in a lot of different directions right now. There's a lot of pressure on us. You're a clinician. That means you take care of patients. You want to show up. You want to look your patient in the eye and provide them the best quality of care. That's the passion that drives you. It's getting harder and harder and harder to do that. And the met the uh, MOC, which is maintenance of certification, is just one other thing that gets piled on. And so he says, when you're asked to do something else, it's a breaking point where you say, I was with you before, but now I'm not filling out these silly polls. I'm not doing additional testing modules on top of the enormous amount of continuous medical education I already do. And it's intruding on my clinical care. And this is, this is actually very true. The doctors uh, spend a lot of time reading stuff and memorizing stuff to be careful these exams. And the more exams the doctors are getting, getting the more dangerous medicine seems to be getting. So he says, you start looking at it more closely and you realize these guys are out of touch. They're talking about the MBAs. There's no evidence to back it up. And there's, there's no evidence to back up that maintenance of certification gives better clinical outcomes. Then you start digging into the financial issues that our friend has done an admirable job on. And you start thinking that this whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense. I've been in practice a long time, and this is the first time I've seen doctors band together this much over a common cause. It's refreshing. Okay. Let me see if I reload my page, if it'll get rid of that box, and by golly, it did. And so he says, one of the criticisms of the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine is then if we're not going to do these testings, frequent testings, then what else are we going to do in terms of supervision and ensuring public trust? So Dr. Shalas says, well, I'll try to be succinct. Remember back to when we were in residence, how did you know if a doctor was any good or not? Well, you could work alongside them. Your senior resident and the intern, and you could tell whether they were good or not. The reason is you shared the same patient. One of the things I noticed when I got out into practice is I can't tell. I have a really hard time telling the good doctors from the bad doctors and the graduations between good and bad. And the reason is I don't have access to their information. I don't see their records. I don't see their patients. I don't see their interview style. And by the way, none of these things are part of the maintenance of certification. It's basically written exams that doctors are, are uh, doctors take. And it says, look simply at patient results. Sometimes you can tell, but most of the time you can't tell, which is the only way we're being evaluated right now on the basis of patient results. So, um, and of course, the reason why you can't tell a patient results is because in 99% of times, the doctor's intervention does not have a positive benefit to the patient. But we'll put that aside. And they mentioned there's a general perspective written by a couple of Harvard Business School people, and that's what I just reviewed with you, <clears throat> that I would encourage people to seek out and read. It is honestly one of the most naive things I have ever read about healthcare, and that's what Dr. Schloss says. And actually, unfortunately, it's Dr. Schloss who's naive because he doesn't realize that what is being talked about here is creating a uniform process, turning the patient into a widget 
and performing a manufactured process on the patient for the profit of a third party, not the profit of the patient and not necessarily profit of the doctor. And so, so Dr. Schloss, of course, is, is, uh, is pretty indignant here. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to go on the record to say that article was horrible. I'm sure these are very bright people, but they don't seem to have a notion of what this is that we actually do. They compare doctors and processes with Toyota and assembly lines, and they suggested that maybe the certification process is a way to create that. This is not that at all. And so, again, what Dr. Schloss does not appreciate is that these guys need this process in place to maximize profits for whoever happens to be uh, in charge at the time. And so you want to put this mechanism in place so you can really, in a blink, adjust what the doctor's process is and what he's doing so that it makes more money either for the hospitals, drug companies, insurance companies, or produces a more docile populace for the government, whatever the um, overriding goal is for that particular production run. And so this guy says, the reason Toyota runs is because of a hierarchical supervision model and the ability of people on the line to be able to speak up and create continuous process improvements. It's not a multiple choice exam. You don't create good auto factory by sending the workers to take a secure multiple choice exam and then putting them in the factory with no supervision. That's not going to work. And little does you know is that they do have supervision. It's already in place. It's the electronic medical records. And so there's instantaneous supervision as soon as the doctor clicks send or save, then that electronic medical record goes straight to a supervisory authority to determine if the widget he just worked on, that's you, was properly processed to the profit or benefit of the appropriate party. And they go on to say, the supervision piece is the part that I find interesting. For many years, managing doctors had too much of the herding cats mentality. We were all independent contractors. We we're not interested in hearing other people's opinions. And that's what got us into this mess. Of course, you doesn't realize what got us into this mess was people buying health insurance and super concentrating the money into one pocket or a few pockets. And therefore, the doctors and the patients now no longer have any economic power or whatever. And so this doctor thinks that independent thinking, listening to patients, doing what seemed to be right, that's what got us into this trouble. So many of us are owned by a hospital. And there is a hierarchical structure in place, I depend upon the hospital to hire me and write my contract. If they add in a supervision piece, I would welcome that. And so again, what the doctor doesn't realize is he's walking further into, uh, further into the bear trap. And he goes on to say, the chief of my department could take some of the American Board of Internal Medicine money and shuttle it into paying a, uh, another doctor or a person to supervise me, like the senior resident used to. And so, again, what the doctor is doing, again, he's going further into the bear trap because who is this guy that's going to be paid to supervise him? It's not going to be a guy who answers to patient desires or patient preferences, but it's going to be somebody who answers to either a drug company, an insurance company, or the government, the person may have a medical degree, but the person they're going to answer to is not going to be either the doctor or the patient. And that is the case on an assembly line. The person supervising the assembly line worker is not responsible, does not answer to that assembly line worker, never. 
and he never answers to the car that's being worked on, never. And so again, the doctor in this case, unfortunately, totally misapprehends the analogy, totally misapprehends uh, really what he's even saying. So he comes by the room, and uh, the senior supervisor would come by the room and ask, how are you doing today? And you'd say, I'm doing a pacemaker. And he looks at the chart and says, I'm not sure I get why. And there's a three-second pause. And, uh, you know, say it's a three-second pause while he's while sleeping, and that's why you're putting a pacemaker in. He says, well, I'm not going to do many more pacemakers that are not needed. But I know somebody's looking over my shoulder, reviewing all the information with the ability to interview the patient and hold me accountable. What he doesn't realize is he's probably going to be asked to do a lot of unnecessary pacemakers to maximize the profit of the hospital. And the real question he's asked himself is, will he start doing more unnecessary pacemakers when the person supervising him instructs him to do so? And so you have these doctors rushing to put in place a structure even more draconian than what these MBAs are even hoping for and not even understanding the implications of it or what uh, it's designed to do. Of course, we could say, well, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for the patient? Doesn't look good. Does not look good. So what we have to uh, take a look at is What's the patient to do? What does the patient do when confronted with this type of a of a system or a mechanism? Well, <laughs> the first thing you have to do is at least keep your freedom. Um, don't become the property of an insurance company, of a hospital, or of a drug company. So how do you become the property of an insurance company? Take out an insurance premium. Make your monthly payments. And then, when you go to see the doctor, he's obligated to process you just as the insurance company wants you to be processed. He does not have a choice. There is no choice. And you may think you have a choice, but uh, you really don't. So I'll give you uh, an example. A friend of mine... So I see her. I said, well, how are you doing? I said, well, you know, I just had a really bad scare. I said, oh, really? What happened? He said, well, you know, I was traveling and some business, and I, and I almost said I couldn't see out of one eye. It kind of got blurred up and this and that. I said, oh, my God, what'd you do? He said, well, you know, this is a you know, Wall Street banker, right? So he said, well, you know, I called my friend, and they had a friend, and they had a friend, and I got an appointment within 24 hours, I tell you, with the top eye surgeon in in the United States. And so... Um, you know, it's nothing for him to hop on a plane, which he did. And uh, he was in that surgeon's office. The surgeon took a look and said, oh, my God, you're bleeding into your eyeball. We need to do a laser. And he did laser by golly right there on the spot. And my friend was just so relieved and so happy. I said, well, good. I'm glad that that helped you. How are things going? He said, well, you know, that was a few months ago. And then I started getting cloudiness and bleeding again. So I went back. He did more laser. And I said, well, hey, Doc, wait, what about my eyesight? He said, oh, your eyesight? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. It's probably going to get worse, and then you'll go blind. He says, well, well, well uh, <clears throat> what can we do? What can we do to prevent this? What can we do to stop this? He says, well, no, not, no nothing really. So, of course, he knew I had a lot of bright ideas on uh, prevention. So I said, well, 
Well, when does this seem to happen? I mean, can you notice any kind of, uh, you know, time of day or day of the week or any kind of association? And so we, we chit-chatted and we found out that it seemed that Astrid had a few glasses of wine, then later on that night or the next morning is when his vision would deteriorate. And I said, oh, well, why don't you just stop drinking? He said, That's not going to happen. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I got it. Drink a glass of water before each glass of alcohol. Just do that. He did that, and he said, it worked great. No more problems. Now, <laughs> obviously, the people who make laser machines the people who make all kinds of surgery paraphernalia, uh, the concept of drink three additional glasses of water is just not going to really get it. That's, that's, that's not the kind of advice that they're going to start handing out. It's not going to be part of the standard of care. So, uh, and this person had just awesome, awesome insurance. So, you... You have to realize that when you have insurance, you, you just turn over ownership of your body. So first, don't do that. Second, I would definitely say just avoid the system at all costs because they are really tightening the noose, tightening the noose, tightening the noose uh, on the doctors. So they just don't have the autonomy. Just, I mean, they couldn't do it if they wanted to in terms of respecting your wishes, listening to you, and trying to tailor a therapy that's personally safe and convenient for you. Um, one example of this is this drug for asthma called theophylline. And the dose of theophylline was uh, two capsules three times a day. Well, it turns out the deadly dose of theophylline is two capsules twice a day. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, of course, people are dying. And um, so as early as uh, 1985, I was reducing the theophylline dose for my patients. I said, well, you know, I think you could get by with one capsule twice a day or, or one capsule three times a day. And uh, the patients did fine. And so that was not, of course, the standard of care back then. And later, many years later, many dead patients later, the dose was actually reduced, lowered, and they, I believe they may even have phased out the use of uh, theophylline itself. So... We have a few minutes left. People have questions. They can click their buttons. And if they're on the chat room, they can type in their questions. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. Who are the companies behind that are behind vaccines? Okay. Again, I think This, this question, of course, is easily answered. Just look up the vaccine. Uh, you can look it up in a PDR, look it up online, and they'll list the manufacturers. And there's a whole um, assortment of them. And so the next question, I think, uh, you know, to ask is, well, who is certifying these vaccines? Of course, the FDA is certifying these vaccines. Well, who runs the FDA? Well, now you've got a, real, a whole showcase of suspects here, right? You know, you, you got the uh, now you get the World Health Organization, who's who's running the World Health Organization. You get the United States uh, government and the people in the government. And basically, when you're 
in a leadership position, the last thing you need is a bunch of citizens asking a bunch of, well, inconvenient questions. And even worse, getting creative and, and doing all kinds of different things at different times, and you can't really kind of coordinate, coordinate them or corral them or control them. uncontrollable. But if you vaccinate them and just get them a little bit stupid, it's a lot, lot easier. One person can only hold one thought at a time when they, when they have difficulty focusing even on one thing, let alone putting sustained effort in one direction. So I personally think, this is just my opinion, that the people who are vaccines are people who want to control um, the population. When I say control, I mean dictate what's done, how it's done, and not have any people um, do otherwise. And it's not even a matter of rebellion. It's just a matter of lack of control and lack of, lack of uh, predictability. Okay. Okay, let's see. Let's see. Let's go check on our blog talk. Time for uh, one question. Okay. All right. So that is pretty much it for today's show. So first thing, don't get health insurance. Second thing, stay away. Third, if you have to show up, make sure that you have a very narrow, narrow objective as to what it is you're trying to accomplish. Maybe you want forms or papers cleared up, filled out. Maybe it's a physical for you to get a job, keep a job, whatever. Very, very narrow. And when you go to the doctor, make it real clear what your expectations are. If he says, no, 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 then just, oh, oh sorry, I have to leave. I've got to go home. Grab every piece of paper and go to another doctor. And so keep uh, doctor shopping. And, uh, you know, pay your doctor directly. Don't go through the insurance company. And that is uh, one way to make it a lot easier to accomplish your personal objectives. Because when you use your insurance, even if you're paying a deductible or a copay, um, what happens is what your insurance company has planned out to have happen in advance to you. And it may not be uh, what you had in mind. Okay, that is it. And we will see you week on Healing with Dr. Daniels. And as always, things happen. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.